the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. I think a lot of parents can relate to that. It's really scary to expose your children to something that so many people tell you can hurt them, can hurt them irreparably. And the worst part of it is that you're the one who causes it, right? You're the one who takes them for the shots. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. If you make fun of someone for doing all of their research online, they're just going to shut down because mm-hmm. they've probably already gotten that before. Welcome back to the 180 cast, where we explore the brains of people who have done a 180 on any of a variety of political, cultural, scientific, or moral questions. I try to find guests for the program who are empathetic and compassionate, especially because many of the topics we deal with here are really contentious and there's a lot of emotion that's bound up in these issues. And Today's topic is vaccines, and and that's no different. (laughs) That's no exception to that rule. So not only does it cause a lot of dissension in, in, in friend circles and in members of the same family and some of the nastiest internet spats you could possibly imagine, it is literally a matter of life and death. Um... The World Health Organization has actually labeled vaccine refusal as one of the top 10 global health threats. Now, you could say they're exaggerating. They're just trying to make a political point. That that may be true. But if you look at the numbers, for instance, here in the U.S., the number of unvaccinated toddlers between the ages of one and a half and three, which is when kids get uh 
significant percentage of their vaccines has quadrupled in the last couple decades. Uh, we've seen measles outbreaks. We've seen outbreaks in California a couple years ago. There's a current outbreak in Washington State. There's an outbreak in New York. And even in my um, home county here in Washington State, there are now several suspected cases of mumps and one confirmed case. So disease is spreading. And this is one of those things that we desperately need to talk about, but not just talk about and yell at each other, but sit down and have an informative, civil, and empathetic conversation. Um, because regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of vaccine beliefs, you know, almost everybody who is, um, involved in, you know, talking about these issues or has something, has a strong feeling about it, their parents, um, their parents like me. And I think that we need to address people in that way and say they have real emotions about this. They have real concerns, real fears, and we need to deal with them in a way that's like, Hey, we're all human. We're all trying to do what's best for our kids here. So Empathy and Compassion, that is the name of the game. So with me today is Holly Shear. She is a frequent contributor at The Federalist, like myself, and is fascinated by politics, culture, and theology. She has written a couple recent pieces for The Federalist on vaccines, and I reached out to Holly because she has sort of a personal conversion story on the subject of vaccines. So Holly, thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about this today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And I think you're absolutely right that if you're going to find a parenting topic um, kind of for our generation that is polarizing, it would really be vaccines and how to talk about vaccines and how to talk about how to keep our children safe from di from disease. And you have people on the one side where we think vaccinating our children is absolutely the best way to do it. And then you have parents on the other side who genuinely believe that not vaccinating their children is the best way to keep them safe. And the gulf between these two sides, I think, is really honestly growing wider and further apart instead of coming closer together. Yeah, that's why it's so important that we talk about this. So you used to be at least skeptical about vaccines. What exactly was was your position and why why did you believe what you believed? Yeah, um, we have four children and my kids are a little bit on the older side. My oldest is um, 15 and then all the way down to six. And we started vaccinating on schedule. So all of the shots as a baby all the way up through um, my oldest daughter's first birthday. And then we got scared. And I think a lot of parents can relate to that. It's really scary to expose your children to something that so many people tell you can hurt them, can hurt them irreparably. And the worst part of it is that you're the one who causes it, right? You're the one who takes them for the shots, who is doing this as opposed to them just being passively exposed to a disease by living their life. And that fear of reactions, of disability, of morbidity from that led us to not vaccinating at all for her for subsequent shots and then our next two children completely um 
they did not get any shots at all as babies, as toddlers. Um, and we were convinced that this was the right path, that by not getting them shots at all, um, we were keeping them safe, that we were being good parents. And um, we had some pretty big knockdown kind of drag out arguments with some family members. And looking back um, at the time, I felt like they were being really mean and in retrospect now i realize that they were being really patient because your family your extended family loves your kids as much as you do right yeah and um i ended up ultimately changing my mind um i was doing some virtual assisting for a science writer who has written some books on vaccines actually and compiling a lot of resources going through the research it really kind of shook that foundation i thought i had um a lot of the things that i was so convinced about you know it's almost kind of a religion you get into it and the further you get into it the more you surround yourself with people who believe the same thing. And if you get a little bit shaky about it, you know, if there's a measles outbreak and you're kind of scared of measles because measles is terrifying, right? It's not a rash. It's not just some mild thing. You talk to other people and they tell you, well, you know, doctors don't want to tell you this, but you just superdose on vitamin A and your child will be fine. But there's a conspiracy to hide this information from, oh, okay. And you feel better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you were not vaccinating your kids, how exactly, because you mentioned that it's kind of like a religion. So how exactly did you get your toe into that door? Was there like an article that you read or somebody that you talked to where you were like, oh my gosh, that I hadn't thought about that. That's kind of scary. (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. Um, I was part of an online social media community, and um, through that, I kind of did some online networking and um, friendship building with other mothers who were vaccine hesitant. And as soon as I expressed any fear and concern about um, my child's health, that maybe um, some things that were going on with her could have been caused by vaccines and they were not. Um, But there's a lot of feeling in the vaccine hesitant or anti-vaccine community that kind of anything that's going on that is um, negative is caused by vaccines. Um, If you go through the vaccine adverse reporting Um, system. It is a self-reporting system. Um, So they really love to pull out um, all of the adverse effects. But if you go through, there's also things in there that are really kind of bananas. There's car accidents in there. There's... um, Wow. Well, but here's the thing. These things get trotted out and brought out as convincing things that, you know, vaccines cause these scary effects, but it's a self-reporting system. So are there negative effects from vaccines? We would say yes, absolutely. And I think we need to be compassionate for families this happens to. And I think sometimes in people's zeal to get other people vaccinated, it almost gets pushed to the side that, you know what, scary things can happen. And any medication, any medical treatment you 
try has risks and we do no benefit to people at all when we pretend those risks don't exist. Right. But those risks also get um, overblown and that's the whole false equivalency thing, right? We have such a safe life here in America that we are more afraid of the side effects of medication than our children dying from diseases that are still catastrophically killing kids across the world. And so that's kind of what happened with me. I sat there and I was more afraid of high fevers. I was more afraid of, you know, encephalitis caused by vaccines. And, you know, that's one in a million. It's very, very rare. Then I was actually afraid of my child catching measles, which as we're seeing in America is getting less and less rare now. And so some of this is, I think, having a conversation with people about what those risks actually are and how common and uncommon things actually are. Yeah. It seems like you know, going through some of the the common objections that people opposed to vaccines have, there is um, it, it's it's like on the surface it seems one way, but then if you dig a little bit deeper and you like put it out on paper and sort of like do the math problems, you're like that doesn't that doesn't work out. But it does seem convincing on the surface. For instance, to say like, um, you know there are more people who get measles who are vaccinated than people who aren't vaccinated. But then it's like, okay, well, yeah, technically that's true. But the proportion of people who are vaccinated in America is just like way, way, way higher. So, and if it's only 98% effective and when you have some people who have only had the first dose and that's only like 93% effective, well, if you work out the math, then it still obviously makes sense that measles, you you have a greater you have a much less chance of getting measles if you're vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated. But on the surface, it's like that initial statement is totally true. Right. So I just pulled up and I'll have to email you a copy of this, um, a copy of some of the VAERS ID um, for claims. And it includes things like patient got tattoo after vaccination against medical advice, passed out from excessive exercise, motor vehicle accident, um, memory loss after alcohol consumption, because again, you can call in and you can report anything, hiccups, infection with mites, hair color of beard changed. I mean, so obviously some of these things are not things being caused by like your flu shot, right? Like your flu shot is not changing the color of your beard. It's not making you get in a car accident. Mm. Someone reported they got a sunburn after a shot. Wow. They had a sports injury from football. Someone got a sports injury from dodgeball. I mean, there's all sorts of things in here. And so sometimes we look at how many people report high fever and stuff. And is it necessarily linked to the shot? We we don't have a great way of actually narrowing that down. Right. So is the VAR system something that is that like one of the pillars of the vaccine refusal sort of belief system is is that like one of the big things that they point to? I think so, because it's really scary when you look at how many records of injury there are. One of the other things people really look at um, without a great understanding is the vaccine court and that we have a system set up where if your child is injured um, by a vaccine, and again, I am not negating at all that that happens and it is awful and it is horrible, um, you go through vaccine court. And one of the reasons that we have this set up is the burden of proof for vaccine court is lower than if you were normally going through civil court. 
And this is supposed to be less burdensome for families because you're already suffering horribly. If your child has a medical procedure and something goes wrong, we don't need to make this worse for families because things are already awful. We don't need to sit there and make, you know, a tragic situation in your life more tragic by putting you in civil court where the burden of proof is so much higher. And so those judgments have a much, much lower burden of proof so a family can get a payout to sit there and take care of their child. But then we can't sit there and take those judgments and use it to necessarily prove whether something was caused by a vaccine and apply that across all populations. It doesn't really work that way. Mm -hmm. So you said that you you were doing some research assisting someone else. So what... Tell me about, tell me a little bit about the specifics of that. Like, what did you come across where you were like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Like, hmm. What, when did you start to, to revisit some of those beliefs that you had and think maybe, maybe I'm not right? Um, some of it was just actually talking to people on the other side. Um, I had been so cocooned with people that shared my beliefs and really sympathized with them that having conversations with researchers and scientists and doctors and looking at their research and really humanizing them reminded me that they were people too and that they had gone into these fields out of a genuine desire to help people and to save lives that, you know, no one joins big pharma out of some sort of convoluted hope to, you know, spread evil across the globe or anything. Um, These are parents as well trying to save their children. And it just, it kind of started to slowly chip away at the things I believed. Um, Some of it was looking at um, some of the individual cases of, you know, um, Wakefield and the autism thing. Um, that he lost his medical license, that he has not gotten his medical license back. Um, Since this article went up at the Federalist today, I have numerous people tweeting at me that, no, he's been exonerated, and he he has not been exonerated. Um, It doesn't matter how many people tweet that at me today. It doesn't change this. Interesting. I I didn't... uh... I didn't know that that was a a thing that was going around, like the idea that he had been exonerated. That's very, very interesting. So, so you're saying that the, the credibility issues on both sides, like maybe you weren't giving enough credibility to the people who were promoting vaccines and making vaccines, and you were giving too much um, credence to, to the people who were trying to discredit, you know, quote unquote, big pharma. Right. And it also was pointed out to me, and I'm not sure why it didn't occur to me on my own, and maybe it's because I'm a gullible person or something, but that all of these people selling the anti-vaccine ideology are also selling things to you as well. If you go on their websites and you read their articles, there's also a huge sidebar or a tab for a store where they are selling you things that they talk about in their articles to maintain your health for you and your children. While they talk about, you know, all the vitamin A you need to protect yourself from measles, they very handily have their own brand of it that you can take that just happens to have the exact bioavailability you need. And it's super handy, right? Or they have, you know, the essential oils you need to boost your immune system. Or, But it was pointed out to me that, you know, they're selling their own books. They're selling their own vitamins. They're selling their own natural health supplements. All of these things that are 
in fields of medicine that are not well regulated and that they're making tons of money. If you look at the biggest natural health practitioners and the homes that they live in, they're not struggling. They're not sitting here and doing this out of some sort of altruism in their heart to just help people get well naturally. I mean, this is big business here. Interesting. Yeah. That seems like something that would be easy to overlook because it, a lot of the times it seems like, um, these health supplements or whatever are sold at mom and pop shops. Like there are these little boutique items that you get where, you know, somebody's taken so much care to, to, to put all these capsules together and to put the label on it and say, you know, I, I use this for my family and you can use it too. And it really helps. Like I kind of, um, for, yeah, I mean, those things aren't, aren't very well regulated. For instance, Kratom, for instance, has been, has been a lot of people have said that that's been really beneficial in their lives, especially in um, weaning themselves off being addicted to other substances. But it's it's true that the that those things, you know, like the homeopathic things are not, um, you know, like the the quote unquote micro doses, like those are not well regulated at all, and you don't really need to meet very many standards. Whereas vaccines, um, you have to meet a pretty high bar to to get those approved, but so, yeah, but this issue of natural immunity, I want to talk just a little bit more about this because that seems like one of the biggest um, talking points from people who refuse vaccines is if you just have good enough natural immunity, then you don't need vaccines. And it doesn't matter, you know, how small you think the risk to vaccines are. If you're, I mean, why would you take that risk if you don't actually need it? There's, I think, a couple um facets to this. And one is the natural immunity is superior to vaccine immunity as part of this claim, right? Next to that is the claim that we need children to catch these diseases so they can re-immunize, and I'm like making air quotes as I say this, adults by exposing them to it. So we need our children to get sick to keep people's immunity high into adulthood. Um, the next part of that is um, a lack of understanding about the risks of actually getting sick in order to get that immunity. Right. Um, and I think a lack of understanding, you know, if you sit down and you talk to one of your grandparents about what it was like in summers when polio was going around and how scary that was, I mean, they were not in a hurry for their children to get polio. I mean, they were in a hurry to get their children vaccinated for polio to avoid that because they didn't want their children to end up in iron lungs. They didn't want to end up in iron lungs themselves. They didn't want to end up, you know, with limbs that didn't work. It's just we don't see these things often enough to really fear them. I don't want my children to get sick and suffer through a week or two of illness to potentially boost my immunity. I mean, that's not really 
I think if you really break it down and talk about your children being sick, and if you saw the pictures in the article at the Federalist today, this baby with measles, she was really, really sick. Her eyes were swollen shut. She had a high fever. It wasn't at all a pleasant thing for her, and she was too small to understand what was happening to her in any way. Yeah. And that's the other aspect of this is most of the time we're not talking about immunizing ourselves because people in the anti-vax community, I feel like most of them have their parents immunized them. So now the conversation is what's the vaccine schedule or lack thereof that you give to your own kids. And it's like, this is about children and and what's best for them. And like I said at the beginning, you know, everybody thinks that they're doing what's best for their for their own children. Um I mean, and the other thing about it is I was I was just thinking earlier today on when Ellie was an infant and she, she we took her in to get her her 6 month set of shots or whatever and you know Cody is is across on the other side of the table and I'm you know holding Ellie's hand and she's just she's just crying so hard just screaming and her face is turning red and they're they're sticking her over and over again at the bottom of her foot and Cody you know like like the expression on his face was I cannot stand to see my child suffer um you know like it's so hard like your instinct in that moment is to move in and be like stop stop hurting my kid you know like it's hard to put yourself in that situation where you're already scared that that there might be a really really bad consequence even if it's just a small percentage chance that your kid is going to get is is going to you know die from this, or or be permanently disabled because of of a vaccine injury? It's that's absolutely terrifying. Even if you think it's a small percentage chance, and it's like, but at the same time, just to see your kid suffer, whether it's it's in the doctor's office when your kid is being um, getting his shots or her shots, or whether they're at home on the couch and you're trying to nurse them back to health, like whatever it is, even if it's a cold, it like when you're a parent of a kid who's sick, it hurts so bad. And I think the, the missing aspect of this seems to be, and you can tell me if you agree or not, is that everybody else has kids too. Like we're not the only families and in order for vaccines to work, we need to have a really, really high vaccination rate so that we can have this herd immunity. But it's hard for us to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and worry about somebody else's kid when we're just, we're concerned about what's happening in our family right now. You know, like it's hard to get your head around that. I feel like some of that is that we've unfortunately lost a little bit of the positive aspects of it takes a village, you know, that all of us, we're in this together. We are supposed to be, you know, all of the best parts of a cooperative society where, you know, if your kid is outside in the front lawn playing and they run toward the street and I'm outside gardening and you're inside, I'm supposed to tell them to stop, not just watch them go. We're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to love each other, even if you know, it's your family versus mine. I'm not supposed to only love and protect my family. I'm supposed to love your family too. And I think we're getting a little bit too individual here when we don't look at families with babies who are very small and families with children who have cancer or an organ transplant and say, you know what, this isn't my child, but I love your child too. And I'm going to help keep them safe 
while I keep my child safe. Just we need to have a little bit of care and concern for our neighbor here and realize that sometimes your neighbor isn't just the person who's, you know, right there next to you. Maybe it's the person who's two blocks away. Those neighborhoods need to get a little bit bigger and a little bit warmer again. Yeah. Was there like a moment when you sort of realized that this was bigger than just your personal decision to vaccinate your own kids or, or was that something that you kind of realized later on after you realized the, the scientific um, benefits of vaccines? I think it kind of is gradual. I think some of it is that when you are not vaccinating, whether it's really a thought that you kind of verbalize or not, you are counting on the herd to protect you. You are counting on, you know, everybody else keeping disease rates low. I mean, think about how many times you hear the argument that, well, but it's so rare. Well, it's rare because we're not having large-scale epidemics like other countries where vaccine rates are very low, right? I mean, we're counting on you know, your child being able to go out and go to Target without getting sick. And it really changed things for me when I realized that I'm asking other people to assume risks I wasn't willing to take myself and that that's kind of a selfish thing to do. And also that whether it was selfish or not, the ability to bank on that immunity passively from everyone else from the herd was getting lower and lower. I mean, I watch the news and I read headlines obsessively. Um, I think all of us who write kind of do that. And Mm -hmm. the more we hear about outbreaks, the more I was realizing that it was getting riskier and riskier. And by the time we had our fourth child, we had kind of wrapped our heads around that um, the risks are there, but the risks are lower than the risk of catching a disease. And if we trust our doctors and our hospitals and our pharmacists and, you know, the medical community that if your child catches a disease and gets catastrophically, horribly sick from it to try to save their life, right? You know, if your child gets an illness of any sort, you rush them to the hospital if they're really ill, right? You trust the people in that hospital to do whatever needs to happen to save their life. And if I can trust a doctor, a nurse, an EMT, whoever it is to try to save my child's life in that situation, maybe I needed to extend some of that trust to them with vaccines. That just like they were interested in saving my child's life, if they were very, very sick, that they probably were not going to turn around and recommend vaccinating them and doing something that would hurt them. It just, it was kind of hard to keep those two ideas in my head about the medical community at the same time. You can't look at a pediatrician and say, you want what's best for my child if they get sick and you will do anything you can to save them, but also say you're pushing vaccines that you know will hurt them. It doesn't really make sense. That's an interesting point. So what do you think are You've written a little bit about this. What what are the biggest things that are holding people back from getting immunized or getting their kids immunized beyond, you know, what we've talked about, about the, the vaccine injury reporting system and, um, you know, the idea of natural immunity? What, what other barriers do people face? I mean, 
it's always going to be the fear, the fear of side effects, the fear of something going wrong, the fear of something going wrong that you've caused, but we've kind of discussed that. I think um, something that is very difficult to wrap your head around and wrestle with, especially for Christians, is um, the moral implications um, in terms of sourcing some of the vaccines where we're talking about um, fetal cell lines and um I think it is very difficult and um, morally painful for pro-life people to wrestle with that. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not talked about very often. I think it's not talked about very often, and I think it is very difficult um, to look at, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and the CDC and understand why they aren't making changes to that since so many people have expressed that you know this is a huge barrier for us and this is you know a deep concern for us yeah that's a whole i mean that's a whole other topic that maybe we should talk about some other time Um, because i know like we've had conversations in in email about about that that subject and yeah it is something that Totally. Um, But yeah, you also mentioned in in a piece before that um, the vaccine schedule itself is like very costly. I mean, there's there's out of pocket out of pocket expenses on top of all of those emotions and all of those fears, you know. I think the reality is that many families here in America are two-income families, and so if you are constantly having to take time off work and take your child out of daycare and take them to an appointment and realize that, at least for my children, um, for a day or two after shots, they had, you know, a little bit of a fever, and it wasn't anything, you know, terribly scary, but they were uncomfortable, and they wanted mom, and I'm a stay-at-home mother um, or a work-at-home mother, however you want to phrase it, but there's nothing really productive you can do in that time because your little people need you. And if you have to work out of the home, that's time you have to take off work that you might not have the opportunity to take off work. And if we are a nation where we value healthy families, I think we need to sit down and actually discuss how do we accomplish this health care without making people, especially people who are in jobs that do not provide family leave with the ability to take their kids to these appointments and then also care for their own children when they're not feeling well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then, and then there's also like this idea that the vaccine schedule is very big box formula, like one size fits all, like these are the vaccines that everybody needs to get, but that might not necessarily be the case. For instance, I remember when I was a teenager, um, I was getting booster shots and the nurse was like, okay, I'm going to give you, what was it? I think it was Gardasil or something like that. I was like, I don't need that. And she was like, yes, you do. And I was like, I'm, I'm a Christian. Like I, I don't engage in risky behavior. I don't, I don't think I need this shot. And my mom backed me up at the time. Um, but it was like, I didn't, I did not need that shot. Maybe somebody else who was a more rebellious teenager <laughs> maybe needed that shot, but I didn't. Yeah. So 
Go ahead. Really, really hard where, you know, some committee in an office that we don't see, we don't know who these people are. They're just these faceless, nebulous people deciding for our family, you know, what shots our kids need when and why, and why are there shots for bloodborne diseases being given to our babies? And why are shots for STDs being given to our 11 year olds? And why are these things happening? Um, those are excellent questions. And I think having all of those lumped in with things like measles, with things like tetanus, where, you know, your kid's outside playing and they step on a rusty nail or they get a cut on their forehead like that case in Washington, I believe, then, you know, the kid actually did get tetanus. I mean, when we lump all of these things together, I think it makes people who are very reasonable hesitant about all of it. Um I kind of wrote a thing about this, and I don't think I ever actually finished it, but we also have things happening where mothers go in and they have really negative experiences in pregnancy or childbirth, and it sours them on the advice they're getting from their doctor because they just weren't listened to, or they were treated disrespectfully, or they were injured, and it scares them to listen to their doctor. So we have this thing happening where our medical community is maybe not treating us as intelligent individual people mm -hmm. and just yeah. blindly expecting us to do all of these things and not explaining any of it. And then you look at, you know, like you said, your six month old baby crying on a table, getting all of these shots and it's very difficult. Yeah. And, and we're not all scientists, you know, or, or, it, it's hard because, you know, like life is holistic. We can't, it's hard to look at these things in a vacuum and be like, well, you did, you just didn't do enough quality research over here. You know, it's like, it's hard to put that on someone because everybody has these needs that they're, that they're trying to meet every single day. And I, I think a lot of times, you know, especially for me, I feel like I don't extend enough grace to, to people who don't spend their whole life researching things like I do. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's hard to do, but like, that's so true about, you know, for instance, negative experiences with pregnancy. Um, when I was talking to Abby Johnson a few weeks ago, we were talking about this and how the medical community seems to, um, it does sort of take a big box approach to women, especially with regarding birth control and the sorts of tests that they run, for instance, during pregnancy, um, you know, like the glucose tests and things like that. It's just like, it's like every year they keep adding stuff that say these, these are the recommended guidelines. And so of course, you know, nurse practitioners, and nurses and doctors and they're like we want to adhere to this because we want to do the best we can and provide the best possible care but then it's like well all of these expenses keep adding up you know and then there's you know one more appointment and one more $800 bill that you have to pay for these tests that of course came back negative and yeah you're so right because it's it's not like the medical community is doing everything perfectly and if we can't acknowledge that i feel like it's really hard to make headway on things as um you know contentious as vaccines um well, and the natural or alternative health community is doing an amazing job of pointing these things out. They're doing a great job of pointing out that this one-size-fits-all approach is not yielding really great maternal and child morbidity and mortality rates. And they look at women and they say, you know, 
that OB didn't really respect you and treat you right. And by the way, lots of women in America die during pregnancy. And oh, do you trust this doctor to give your baby shots? And they stop and go, huh, you're right. And so I think when we have kind of this relationship going on, we're not doing anyone any favors. And I'm not actually sure now that I've brought up this problem, how to fix it at all. So here's this problem and I have no solutions. (laughs) Well, at least we're talking about it. There's a start. Okay. So, but I have one more question for you. Um, And that is if, let's say that you have a a dear friend who is anti-vaccines and they're not going to put their kids on vaccines. Let's say they have an infant. What, and, and they're sitting across from you and you're having coffee and the subject comes up. How do you, how do you address this? What's the most persuasive, you know, approach that you can take to convincing somebody that vaccines is really the most beneficial choice for their family? I think the first thing to keep in mind is that If you make fun of someone for doing all of their research online, they're just going to shut down because Mm -hmm. they've probably already gotten that before, Um, that you need to keep enjoying them as a human being, um, loving them as a friend or a family member. Don't see them differently. Don't, we all have things that we have views on the other people disagree with, right? We need to stop feeling like friendship that family here in America is something that can only be built on total 100% compliance and agreement on every issue. I mean, what a scary little echo chamber we build for ourselves when we do that. I think some of the best relationships are those with people who do disagree with us on issues. So I don't think it's a reason to cut people off or to be frightened of people. And so I think if you look at the person across from you with a baby and they are afraid of vaccines, they're holding their child, and that child in their arms, you know, is happy and healthy and looks perfect to them, realize that they're afraid of doing anything that takes that happy, perfect baby and changes that. It's really scary, and you need to meet them where they are on that and be very empathetic and compassionate. You can't sit there and take research or facts and just kind of beat them over the head and make them change their position. Um, I think you can have a series of conversations with them kind of built around um, news stories, um, particularly when we have outbreaks going on about, you know, well, what would you do if X, Y, Z, you know, if you are in a place and somebody was there with measles and you can gently point out things like measles stays active in the air in a place for up to two hours, you know, after someone who's infected has been there. And that kind of blew my mind that it is so infectious that you don't even have to be present in the same room as a person to be at risk. And you don't even have to just barely cross paths with them, that it is in the air for hours after they're there, that 90% of the people who come across measles who are not immune are going to catch it, that it's one of the most infectious diseases out there. Um, 
one of the things that scares me the most about measles actually, and it's um, more risky the younger you catch it. So older children are less at risk of this, but there is a post-infection condition with measles and it's called SSPE. If you want to look it up, it's called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. And it is when measles kind of hangs out in your body for years after an infection. So a child catches it, they get sick, they recover, they look like they're fine, and they look like they're fine for years. And then all of a sudden, they go downhill, and they go downhill really, really fast. And unfortunately, even with the amazing health care we have in America and in Europe, there is nothing we can do for these children. And they unfortunately pass away, and we have not found um, a way to fix this. And when I read about this and people told me about it, I was really terrified that your child could get a disease and look like they were fine and things weren't fine and there was no treatment for it um, and that it led to death in all of the cases. Because when we talk about trying to protect our children from things, we're protecting them from this, right? We're protecting them from being exposed to things that could hurt them, that could lurk inside them and kill them. And it just... um, it really terrifies me that this exists. Yeah. So but it's not fear mongering so much as saying, you know, these are the the realities of disease and this is what vaccines are made to prevent from happening. Exactly. That yeah. When we talk about um measles um, and this is something people again are tweeting at me today, is that nobody in the US has died of measles in the last ten years and um It's not true. And one of the reasons that they say that is they're not counting in the deaths from this post-measles infection. But you have to include all of the ways that measles kills you. I mean, you have to look at the other things it causes. And there actually are measles deaths in the last 10 years. Um, So I'm not even sure where people are getting their numbers with that or if they just like to tweet things at me. Um, yes, Twitter, that, that bastion of scientific <laughs> accuracy. Of scientific <laughs> accuracy and reason, yes. Um, one of the frustrating things about that, too, is the people repeatedly telling me that I am not pro-life for my support of vaccination. So mm, That's disappointing. This is a very heavy conversation, but I, I'm, I'm sorry so... it ended up being so heavy. No, no, of course. I mean, like, this is what I expected. No, but I was just going to say, like, everything you said was so constructive and helpful. And this is why I love to have conversations with people who have have been there, have changed their minds, because you guys tend to be so much more empathetic and just understanding and level-headed. And that is so needed in this political and cultural environment. So I really appreciate you, like, stepping up to the plate on this because it's it is hard to write about these kind of subjects because people are so passionate and i'm sure you're getting a bunch of blowback right now um obviously it sounds like on twitter and that's no fun at all there is just something about that medium that brings out just the wackiness in people and you know i love it and i hate it just all at the same time yeah yeah it's it's tough so you know i i'm praying for you um 
because no really i'm serious like it's it's not um it it's not easy to get that kind of avalanche of of hate and and misinformation and and gaslighting that tends to come your way when you write about something that other people are very passionate about um but anyway thank you holly where can we f- where can we follow you um and the writing that you do are you going to add negative things at me or no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at H Shear. That's S C H E E R at 1580. Excellent. Um, and then your writing is at the federalist, right? Yes, absolutely. Sorry. Awesome. Okay. You can follow the podcast on social media at 180 cast. Give the podcast a review and a rating on iTunes if you like it. Believe it or not, it really, really helps in getting this podcast in front of a wider audience so that we can have more constructive um, conversations that reach more people and get people thinking about these issues in a more reasonable and empathetic way. So... You can send me your feedback um, on Twitter at 180cast or DM me on Twitter at 180cast if you have a 180 story to, to tell or you know somebody who has a good story that might be a good fit for the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman where I weigh in on various and sundry news items and white hot internet controversies such as which hot sauce is the best for eggs? <laughs> the answer is Tabasco. And oh, Inez Stepman is wrong. One. It's not Cholula. It's not, you know, red hot or whatever that garbage is that they consume on anywhere else but the West Coast. Because apparently it's hard to find Tabasco if you're not on the West Coast. But the answer is Tabasco. Okay, so... Let's just, let's just leave it at that. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 